When we, when we think of the Christian life, uh, you know, we think primarily the biggest thing that, that comes to mind as part of faith in Christ is this, the idea of salvation, right? We, we ask ourselves, you know, what, what comes next in this life? And we're looking to what happens when we die and we're wondering about our future and the security of it. And so as Christians, we rejoice in salvation through Christ alone crucified. And that's, that's the thing that, that is the crux, that is the crescendo of God's work, is, is the salvation and ultimately the restoration and redemption of all mankind, right? We, as we pray this morning, we look at the world around us and we, we know that we, something's not right and we want it to be different. And we look at verses like those in Revelation that describe this, this city, this holy city that we can be among God's people. And so the, the, the crux of the, of the Christian story is a God who restores all things. And so for, for those of us who are in Christ, that's the rejoicing that we, we have. But it's not the, the only aspect of the Christian faith that, that is worthy of celebration. See, when God saves us, whenever it is that you came to Christ, or maybe you haven't yet, right? whether you've been a, a Christian through your life at a young age and you don't remember a specific day, you've just kind of grown up in the church, or you became a follower of Christ you know, half an hour ago, um, th- there is something else that happens besides kind of the fire insurance when you die. Uh, and that is, that is this, your life gains purpose. More than anything, I think what we as humans long for is purpose. We want to know that this life that we're living, the struggles that we're facing, the stuff we go through, the pains of growing, that there's some kind of rhyme or reason to it. Right? I, I always uh, had trouble understanding uh, the people in this world that kind of think that nature is really just all there is. Like we, we are just uh, this existence that is kind of random, right? Way back when a star blew up and now we have everything that we have today. And you, you're born, you live, you die, and that's it. Right? Now we can talk about the scientific argument uh, about that all we want. And if you want to, I'd be happy to do that. Um, we, have, we have some dear friends that, that are some top tier scientists who who I've had the privilege of speaking with over the years, who would go toe-to-toe with you and debate you on, on intelligent design. But for me, it's, it's much more of an existential question. Because I, I don't know that I want to live in a world where I don't have purpose. Right? Where it's just nothing. Where I just live and die. It, it makes no sense to me from an existential standpoint. Why do I want to live in such a world? And more importantly, if I am born into and forced to live in such a world, why do I want to do anything in terms of moral virtue or striving towards any kind of goals? Or why do I want to be kind to anybody? Why do I want to exude love? Why do I care about any of that, right? If there's no purpose for me, if there's nothing higher than myself, then why do I care about any of those things? I'm just going to try to get the most of instant gratification and pleasure that I can in that moment. And I'm going to do that every day, selfishly, not caring about you or anyone else, until I die. Because what? It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. No, see, the faith that we have in Christ gives meaning and purpose to us. We understand that we are existence outside of ourselves. We're not just a random product. We are made in his image. And we're made for something. You weren't just born 
because of a star that exploded millions of years ago. You were born because an intelligent designer made you the way that you are, the way that you look, the way that you think, the ways that you have gifts and talents that others don't have, and the gifts and talents that you would like to have but lack. You lack those for a reason, because he wants you to do something different. We gain purpose. To me, that is almost as good of a gift as salvation, is it not? It's not quite, but it's close. Like, I, I get to get up in the morning and know that I'm here for something, that it means something, that I'm, that I'm here and put in this place. It means something that I am married to Britta and not anyone else. It means something that I work here and pastor here and, and get to preach to this specific group of you people, not anyone else, right? There's a reason that is God-ordained that I'm speaking to you and not a church down the street. Right? That's, that's a purpose, and that's not, that might be less exciting for you, but it is what God has made happen, so I'm sorry if that, if that hurts your soul a little bit, but you're stuck with me, right? Because we have purpose. That's a big thing. Because of this, because of this Christian life giving us purpose, it, it stands in a stark contrast with the world and the way it thinks and operates. See, the world, in a lot of ways functions like we are just kind of randomly there. Right? Much of the world doesn't give a lot of thought to what our existence is all about or why. It's just we're here, and so we need to make the most of it while we're on this earth. That's why we have phrases like YOLO, right? You only live once. Sorry to tell you, if you're in Christ, YOLO, and then you YOLO forever, right? It doesn't end. So don't, don't do things as if it's going to be over when you die, because there's a whole lot more coming and you're going to have to think about those things afterwards. Right? It changes things. And so in a lot of ways, we know that as followers of Christ that we stand in opposition to the world. Not intentionally, not because we want to be mean, not because we want to tell the world how to do its thing, but because we understand that it's different. It's not our home. Right? We're, we're in a way aliens here for a time being until we go to our final destination where we're meant to be. And so there's really, today, there's two things I want to focus on that are different for the Christian life than from the world, secular type of life, All right? And they're this. Number one, and these analogies aren't mine. They are used by, I can't pinpoint one specific person. They're used by, I would argue, five to ten different pastors and theologians that, that I've known over the years. But this is kind of a universal thing. Number one, as Christians, we are not nomads, but we are pilgrims. What's a nomad and what's a pilgrim? A nomad is a person who is constantly on the go. Right? You have these friends. They don't have a home. Right? Today they live in Barcelona. Tomorrow they live in Guatemala. Um, yesterday they climbed Mount Everest, and tomorrow, you know, next week they're going to live in Japan for a year to, to live in this monastery because they can. Uh, until it kicks them out, and then they'll move. Nomads just go through life traveling. They don't like to be settled. Right? They don't like to be in one place. If a nomad buys a house, something's wrong. Right? If you have a friend that's a nomad and they're, they're, they're getting a realtor, like check on your friend, because that's not how they should operate. And here's the, here's the thing. The goal for the nomad is to travel, to journey. The destination is far less relevant. As a matter of fact, most of the time, the nomad doesn't really have an ultimate destination. They're just moving through life. Right? 
Many of us have friends like that. Like, right, when we have a major life event, I'm like, I don't know where to send the baptism invite because I don't know what country they're currently in. Right? Pilgrims are also people who journey, but here's the main difference. Pilgrims have a set destination in mind. A pilgrimage is a journey to a specific place and a specific goal. And so as Christians, we are not nomads. We're not just wandering through the world until God comes back. We're on a pilgrimage. We're moving in a specific place and direction. We all have the same goal in mind. We are moving towards the Lord together as his people of one heart and one mind in one direction, unified together, right? If you were to look at a map of the Christian journey, it starts here and it goes up. It doesn't squiggle around a whole lot versus a nomadic life. And the second is this. The pilgrimage we're on is a long, slow journey. And it's not a day trip. So as followers of Christ, we are on a pilgrimage and we are on one that is a long one. We, don't, we live in this world that is so instant. Right? The other day I made instant rice with instant mac and cheese. Not together, because that's weird. Right? But we have all these things and we're used to having them immediately. If I want to watch something on TV, I have any one of seven different streaming services that I can get it instantly. I mean, wasn't it like four years ago that we were going to Redbox? Anybody here still go to Redbox? Every once in a while, right? You see less and less of them. Why? Why would I drive to a box, let alone a movie store, right? Anybody in any blockbusters? I think if I recall, there's still one open or is it done? Is there one left? Yeah, there's one left, right? But we don't do that anymore. We just click and everything is instant in the world we're in. We want things when we want them and generally we want them now. The Christian life is different. It's a stark contrast. When we walk with Christ, a lot of times... The now, the immediate, isn't the response that we get. The Lord is about the slow-moving process. He's about shaping us and transforming us. And the Lord will at times cause us, I'm not saying that every suffering in the world is caused by God, but the Lord will allow us to struggle and suffer through life in order to shape us. Like the potter shapes the clay in the kiln in order to be transformed into something beautiful and useful. He will allow us to go through those growing pains of life so that we might be shaped. And so Christianity flies in the face of an instant gratification society. There are times when we pray and the Lord says, yes, here you go. There's times when we pray and the Lord says, nope, that's not what you need. And there's times when the Lord says, yes, but later. And that later could be two weeks, two years, or two decades. If you've been walking with Christ for a long time, you know this. You know that there are times where you've prayed stuff that, man, 10 years later, here it is. And wow, your Lord, you really took your time on that one. When I watch my kids on Fridays, it feels like 10 years goes by, <laughs> as you just witnessed. <laughs> right? But that's, that's the world we live in. James Montgomery Boyce says it this way, Christianity is a long obedience religion. And if we don't know that about it, we know very little about Christianity. It's the truth. So how do we as Christians do this journey well? What is it about this life as we come to know him and we have this jubilant experience of I am now a follower of Christ? From that point until we breathe our last, 
Kind of what's, what does the journey look like? How do we do it? And how do we do it well? If the traveling is long, what should we pack? What should we bring? How should we think? How should we function? Who should we talk to and trust along the way? Those are the questions of the Christian life. And there's a helpful answer, albeit a little bit skewed, that is tucked away deeply in no other place than the book of Psalms. And that's where we're going to spend the next few weeks of our time. Full disclaimer, um, I am a fiercely logic-brained person. I am not artsy by any stretch. I long for the day where I don't do this anymore because we've hired a worship leader and I can sit down there like a stoic Presbyterian and sing just like the rest of us, right? Um, my mind functions much more in a like, logical way. I had much more fun working my way through the, the legal book of Galatians than Psalms. Psalms is probably my least studied text, right? But the beauty of Scripture is that the Lord makes himself known to us in whatever arena and way our minds work, right? And so if you are a hyper-logical person, you can read Paul, and he will lay out logical arguments for the faith. If you are far more of an emotional, feeling type of person, you can read a text like the Psalms, and it will expound the word of God to you and the truth of the gospel to you in a way that is beautiful and poetic and meaningful, right? And so there's the beauty of Scripture that allows different people to connect with God in different ways because he built us to be unique and different from one another. And so when we spend some time in the Psalms this week, just keep that in mind. You, I want you to have an open mind about it because you may be like me. You may be terrified of the book of Psalms. You may have never read it. Maybe that's you. Maybe you get to that part and you skip right over. You would rather study the book of Chronicles than the book of Psalms. Right? But it has something to teach us. And we're going to specifically look for the next few weeks at a small set of psalms towards the very end of the book called the Songs of Ascent. Right? In the Hebrew, it's, it's, this, it's this combination of words that we hear called shir hama'aloth. Shir means him in Hebrew. Ma'alah means step or going up. And so they are songs of stepping up. Traditionally, they, they are Psalms 120 through 134. And traditionally, they would be the songs that the Hebrews, that the Israelites would sing as they were journeying up to Jerusalem at the various points of the year. And for, for the various feasts that they would attend, there's a whole, whole bunch of times that the Hebrews would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to gather together as God's people, and they would sing these sets of songs, oftentimes we think sequentially, like in, in the order in which they're listed in the book of Psalms, and they, they would be sung as this preparation to worship once they got there. Almost like this primer to encounter the Lord. Right? We're here. We want to get here. We need to prepare our hearts and minds to be there, be in the right space once we get there. So these are the things that we're going to sing and recite and chant together as we get ready and go up the hill. And Jerusalem was at one of the highest points, and so it was literally an ascent to Jerusalem. And so they became known as the Songs of Ascent. They have different themes. They talk about a whole bunch of different areas of the Christian life. Things like worship and service and work and hope and joy and perseverance. And so this morning we're going to look at the first two. They're designed to be this progression of that prepares God's people to be together. And the two we're going to look at today are Psalms 120 and 121. 
and, and I have kind of a, just a caveat for you. Their themes are a little different. We think of like, what's the Christian life? What's the part of it? Well, worship and joy and perseverance. But the first two themes that the Songs of Ascent look at are repentance and providence. And you might be in this room and not really know what one or two of those terms mean, and that's okay. But we'll look at both of the Psalms together this morning, and we'll just unpack them a little bit as a primer and intro. And then I would encourage you as you go home to read through this week the Songs of Ascent as you prepare to hear from the Word of God for the next few weeks. So here's, here's Psalm 120, and I would invite us to stand as we hear God's word together uh, out of reverence. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, O deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the bottom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. All right, you can be seated. The scripture readings in the next few weeks are pretty short because Psalms aren't that long. Right. Now, many of you may hear this versus other scripture that you read and say, what? Right. what, what is he talking about with Meshach and Kedar and the, the deceitful tongue and all these things? Um, there, there are two things that we can point out in this set of verses that bother the psalmist, the guy who wrote this. And, and the two of them are lying and hostile neighbors. Right? He's complaining and lamenting about the, the, the deception and the conflict that seems to be going on in the culture around him. He mentions two places, Meshech and Kedar. Meshech is, is the, the Meshech live in, kind of lived in Turkey and by the end of their time as, as a people group, they had pushed their way in what today is known as Ukraine. Right? We all know Ukraine very well based on the, the conflicts that we've experienced over the past few months there. But that's kind of the region that they were in. And the Qatar were this wild Arab tribe. Um, what's interesting is that the two were nowhere near one another. Like these aren't neighboring tribes that like interacted. Uh, where there's a guy who's writing this psalm who lives kind of in their neighborhood and is experiencing them. And so what we can assume based on the choice of these two is that, that the person writing the psalm is talking, he's trying to convey this idea of, of, of the world in general, like the culture that stands opposite him. When you look at the tribes and the, the, the areas and the cities and the rulers and the powers that are around him, he's seeing this deceit all the places that he looks and deception and quarreling and war. And he's tired of it. He's tired of it. I don't know about you. I can resonate with a guy like that. Because we don't have to go very far to see that there is a world out here that we sometimes just have a hard time accepting and resonating with, don't we? He's homesick. He's longing for a place to be that is not of the world that he's currently in. The psalm gives us a reason for the journey that we embark on in the first place. This is really important. Boyce puts it this way. The starting place for our spiritual pilgrimage is seeing that the world, seeing the world for that it is in order to turn from it. Right? He's saying that the psalmist is exclaiming, I don't want to be a part of this world that I'm seeing. Where I find myself 
is not, is not what should be. Something is wrong about this place and the way that the world functions. And I don't know about you, if you, if you can't agree that the world as we live in it isn't the way it's supposed to be, regardless of your faith background, really? This world is messed up. I don't care if you're Christian or if you think God is hogwash. This world as it is, is a mess and a wreck and a place of wickedness and filth. Most of us spent the better part of the week mourning the loss of elementary age kids and their teachers. You're going to tell me the world's the way it's supposed to be? Please challenge me. Wherever you are in your faith journey, for sure you've got to be discontent with the way that things are. Right? And so the Songs of Ascent, while it seems like a really grim place to start, right? We're on a pilgrimage, we're going to Jerusalem, we're excited. What should we sing first? Psalm 120. Why? Because it's the reason for the pilgrimage. Pilgrims don't go anywhere if they're happy where they are, right? If your current location is filled with the joy and the hope and you look at it and you go, this is the way that things should be, why would you go anywhere? You're not going to go on a journey. You're going to stay put. No, the first step of a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and the journey to God is to understand and accept that this world isn't the way it's supposed to be. Something's got to change. Whatever it's doing, however it's operating, right? And this isn't a politics thing. We're not, even, we're not getting into politics at all in the book of Psalms. I don't care what your political leanings are. I really don't, right? We can all agree, whatever systems we have in place that are supposed to run the world are failing us. And they're failing us massively. It is not the way it is supposed to be. Every night when I go to sleep, I look at the world and I go, man, this, isn't, this is, can't be it. And so the logical next step is that we turn towards something else. We turn away. And when we turn away from one thing and turn towards another, that is what's called repentance. The word repentance, we think it's that we pray a prayer of confession and we say, sorry, Lord, for my sins. Repentance is a turning away from a thing towards the opposite thing. We say, no more of this. And so we repent. And so that's the first psalm of ascent. It's this idea of repenting away from the way that things are and turning towards something else. And so the next logical question is, well, what else do we turn to? Where do we go? If the world isn't the way it is supposed to be and we need to move in a different direction, okay, I can get on board with that. Pretty much anyone on the planet can get on board with that. But where do we turn to? It's the way it is. I don't think in our lifetime we're going to have a president elected that's really going to solve all of our problems. And if we could acknowledge that, then when voting booth time came up and we walked to it, we could probably go there with a lot less hostility in the world because we'd acknowledge that the president or the member of Congress that we check off in the ballot box isn't going to be our functional savior. Right? That there's no man on this world or woman in this world who's going to solve the problems and make everything right. It's not going to happen. And if you think it is, please meet with me. Let's chat after. Right? 
but we turn to something else. And what is that something else? The answer comes in Psalm 121. And where the first one was depressing, the second one you may recognize. And you know what? I'll invite us to stand again because they're so short and it's good to stretch our legs, especially when you have to listen to me talk for a prolonged period of time, right? I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And you can be seated. If I had one more up-down in the church, we'd be Catholic, but we're not going to have another one, so we're good. We're safe. Someone's like, man, I left the up-downs to come here. What are we doing? Next week, we're going to have pads that you can kneel on. (laughs) I went to the Anglican Seminary. They had had those pads. At least they were comfortable. Some of them are made of wood. But anyway, so this psalm comes to us as an answer. The psalmist says, I, I don't like the world. I don't like the way it is. This is frustrating. This can't be all it is. Like, God, there's got to be something else. And he turns and he says, where does my help? Where is the hope? Where does it come from? He's looking up at the hills. Does it come from the hills? Does it come from somewhere else? No, it comes from the Lord. He answers his own question. Where should our pilgrimage take us? It should take us to the one who made the world in the first place, to the one who never sleeps, to the one who keeps and sustains us, to the one who won't let us be stricken down, to the one who keeps us from evil, more on that in a second, and the one who holds our life in the palm of his hand. That's where our help comes from. The psalmist in this psalm is proclaiming what we call the providence of God, the idea that the Lord has everything under his control everything. And that yes, there is evil in this world and it's allowed to happen. Not because the Lord causes it. Not every evil that we see in this world is the judgment of God. You hear that, right? When tragedy strikes, there's people that come out, well, God is judging them. That's not necessarily what is happening. Evil exists because sin exists in the world. And someday the Lord will deal with it in finality, but he hasn't yet. And so we live in this weird kind of already but not yet where we have one foot in heaven and one foot still in the sinful world. And we long for the day when it gets finalized. And we just pray for it. Right? That's why. What's the phrase that I give you all the time? That's why at the very end of Revelation, what does John say? Come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Right? Come now. Don't wait. Right? We long for that time. But God's providence proclaims that he holds us up. It is not the world and its systems that will ultimately cause things to be the way they should be. It is the Lord. His providence promises that he has us. Not that we're free from pain forever, but that he has us in the palm of his hands. He won't let us perish, though you might struggle. I remember debating years ago, I was on a mission trip to St. Louis with a bunch of high schoolers from a church I worked at long before I moved to Ohio. And we encountered like a group of atheists Uh, at this one evening activity that we were at. We were at this kind of children's museum type of play thing, and there was a group there. And we we encountered an atheist because we were all wearing Jesus shirts because that's what you do on a mission trip. And he just made a statement of like, y'all are what you think is crazy or whatever like that. And so we're getting into a debate. And at the very end of it, um, I didn't persuade him. I didn't really mean to. 
But here, here's what I always like to say to atheists that, that believe that the world is just caused out of randomness. For, for you to believe that, that everything we have in front of us today, what we see here, is a result of the pure randomness of the explosion of the universe millennia ago. That out of that comes not just life, I could believe life and cells, but, but the way that we think, the way that we have morality, the way that we have a right and a wrong, the way that we are capable of loving people, right? the love we have for a child when they're born, that those things could come out of a pure natural randomness. If you believe that, you at the very least have to be as crazy as me who believes that an intelligent designer made it. Like, so let, if we're going to debate, let's at least start there. Let's not assume that you have the, the factual science and I am the loony. But let's start at the idea that we're, we're at least, the, the ideas are equally crazy. Right? And then let's talk from there. The Lord lifts us by his providence. And what I said to the guy next is this. The world's a chaotic place. The way that you think about it and the randomness of it and the way that we govern it and the way that we choose to do things in this world because of what we think naturally about it isn't working for us. Would you not agree? He said, yeah. I said, you know, maybe you should try my way on for size and just see how it feels. And he didn't agree and then he went his own way. And, you know, I, I wish it was a great story that I could be like, and then he became a Christian and now he's a Patino. Right? Maybe, who knows? The Lord has a providence. He functions in a way that upholds all things, where the governments of this world and the morality of this world and the way that we want to do things in this world naturally fail. Where it has gotten us is nothing. The Lord's way will get us where we want to go. He will hold us together. And so the people of God as they journey to Jerusalem and the people of God as they journey today, they start with the acknowledgement that the world is in a place that it shouldn't be, and then they turn to the one who can get it to where it needs to go. And they rejoice that they serve a God and that we serve a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-understanding, and capable, and that he will pull this world out of the muck and the mire that it's in, and that he will one day restore all things. And we trust in that. And we turn towards him. The Psalms of Ascent begin with these two ideas because they're foundational to the faith that we have. Right? Think about this. When do you spend time in prayer? When do you spend the most time in prayer? Is it when you wake up and you have the perfect day? No. Many of us don't pray until stuff goes south. Right? It's when life hits hard. Right? There, are, there are folks of us among us in this room, and there are times in my life where I've been one of them, where you go, man, I haven't prayed in months. But then some tragedy hits, and what do you, where do you go? You're on your knees. Lord, get me through this. Chances are you start making promises. And I will live for you, and I will attend church more than once a quarter. Right? How many of you have, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have bargained in prayer with God when you've needed something? Right? We are naturally prone by the sin that we have in our hearts. We pray more when we have need. And so a part of the, the rhythm of how we come to know God is by first acknowledging that we live in pain and that we need deliverance and refuge from that pain. And so we turn 
And so that's how these psalms start. They start with this acknowledgement, man, something ain't right. I need, I need something different. And where does that help come from? That helps come, it comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and of earth. Most people I know that have come to Christ in one of two ways. They came to Christ because they grew up in the church and they knew him their whole life, or they came to Christ because in the midst of tragedy, they had people that, that spoke truth into them and they experienced the peace of God. And there was something about it that they couldn't understand. And in the midst of their, their struggle and their pain, there, there was a peace that surpassed all understanding and they just surrendered their life to it. And they never stopped coming. That's what the beginning of these psalms is all about. Our journey, our ascent to this long, obedient life of the gospel starts with the frustration of the world, and it causes us to turn to the God who has the answer for us. The Psalms themselves are meant to be pedagogical. It's a fancy word for a method of teaching. Right? One of the important things that we believe about the church is that we have all these different aspects. We have worship that is musical, and we have teaching that is, you know, me or someone else getting up here and expounding the Word of God, and we have prayer, and we have community, and we have poetry and songs. We have all these different ways in which avenues in which we come closer to Christ because the Lord understands that our life, our souls, our ways of being aren't one-faceted, right? And so we're taught in many different ways. We're taught with our minds, by listening and, and absorbing and thinking, we're taught through experience by encountering the living God in this space together, or when we go serve him, and we see how freeing that is. The Psalms are this way of teaching. They are part of God's ordained process for how we as his people are discipled. And the Songs of Ascent are one set of those that we'll spend a few weeks on. I want to close with this. Eugene Peterson says this in a long obedience in the same direction. By the way, um, if you want to, this, this book by Eugene Peterson, if you don't know who he is, he wrote the message translation of the Bible. Um, he, he passed away rather recently. But uh, probably top five Christian books that I would recommend that you would read in your lifetime is A Long Obedience in the Same Direction by Eugene Peterson. And it's a devotional book that actually uses as its base the songs of ascent as he walks through what discipleship in today's world looks like. Um, if you haven't read it, please go read it. Um, please go even read it this month. Well, maybe next month, because we have like two days left. And it's Memorial Weekend, and you're going to have a cookout. Right? But, but read this book. I mean, I can't, I can't stress enough. And we'll, we'll look at the things that he says over and over again as we go through the next few weeks. But here's one. I knew that following Jesus could never develop into a long obedience without the deepening life of prayer. And the Psalms had always been the primary means by which Christians learned to pray everything they lived and live everything they prayed over the long haul. The Lord gives us the book of Psalms to shape us, not just our minds, but our hearts. Right? That's why we have music and poetry in the world, because it hits us in a way that nothing else can. The Psalms were the music of the people of that time that were the Lord's. And so over the next few weeks, I would invite you that even if it's uncomfortable, to spend some time in them, to, to unpack them, to learn and grow together. And, and, and let's spend the next three, four weeks looking at this journey upward. Next week, we'll start with worship, the logical response to hearing about the providence of God. Right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that as we go through lives of pain, as we live in a world that just doesn't feel like it should be home, 
you are present and that you promise us that we have nothing to fear because we are in your care. We thank you for that truth of the gospel that as we come here, some of us beaten and broken, that we have a place to look up, that we can look up the hill that is you and say, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and of earth. Lord, we pray that through the next few weeks as we encounter these psalms that we might connect on a deep level with those who sung it on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, that as they prepared their hearts and minds to be in your presence spiritually and worship you, that we might use them as a way to prepare us to be with you ultimately. That they might be the songs that guide our journey from now into this next life. Let them nourish us and sustain us. Be with us as we go out. That we would be shaped by your truth and your word. And that no one here would leave the same way that they came. And that we would scatter and that we would carry your gospel into our spheres of influences. Into our workplaces and our families and our schools. And our loved ones. Be with us as we close our time in worship together and go out. Keep us until next week. That we might gather again to worship you yet another time. We love you and we praise you. And all people said...